technology is undoubtedly the best thing that has happened to mankind laptops tablets wearables gaming consoles music players and the endless list of smart devices have become so integral to making our lives easy and exciting but do we get to see tech from the maker's perspective in this podcast we will be looking at all the technology news and discuss how the makers of tech are trying to vie for a spot in our ever increasing technology ammunition i am bharatwaj and this is tech talk weekly Hello everybody and welcome to the 5th episode of Tech Talk Weekly. This episode is being recorded on the 13th of September and we'll be looking at the most exciting technology news that grabbed our attention last week. So here's all the news lined up for this episode. With Apple's launch event scheduled to happen this week, we take a look at the rumors and details that we already know about the upcoming iPhones. We'll also be discussing why Apple's potential strategy for the iPhone 12 will once again disrupt the plans of other flagship smartphone manufacturers. Google Pixel 5, the company's flagship device tipped to be launched later this month, is expected to opt for the mid-tier Snapdragon 765G chipset. Is this the beginning of Android flagships focusing on the customer experience narrative instead of talking specifications? Samsung may be working on a new Galaxy Fold Lite, the affordable version of its foldable smartphones. Is Samsung throwing all but the kitchen sink to reclaim lost market share? The first round of reviews of the recently launched Realme 7 and Realme 7 Pro swarmed the internet. Will the duo from the Chinese challenger brand have a chance of shaking up the segment? We get more rumors of the OnePlus Glow, a device that marks OnePlus's foray into the ultra-budget smartphone market. But why is OnePlus looking to enter the segment? Huawei announces Harmony OS 2.0 at its recent developer conference. What is Harmony OS and does Huawei have what it takes to challenge Google and Apple? So the first news today is about the upcoming Apple event where they're expected to launch a bunch of iPhones. So let me first call out what we already know before I share my point of view. First of all, I'm assuming that they'll be calling it the iPhone 12 and we may have four devices being launched during the event in with three display sizes and they would be coming out in 5.4 inches, 6.7 inches and a couple of devices in the 6.1 inch category. The 6.7 inch iPhone and the 6.1 inch model will be the higher end devices with triple lens cameras while the 4.1 and the 6.1 inch model will be lower end iPhones with dual lens cameras and a more affordable price tag. But the good news is all the devices are expected to support OLED displays but the higher uh, refresh rates may be restricted to only the higher end models. Again there are contradictory uh, opinions here that Apple may entirely do away with the 120Hz displays because they didn't have the right quality of displays approved on time and hence they had to do away with it entirely. Uh, again coming to the design standpoint the rumor suggests that the new iPhones will feature a significant redesign with a metal frame that's similar to what we saw in the iPhone 4 or the iPad Pro what excited me though was that the iPhones will use a new true depth camera system that cuts down the size of the notch on the front but rumors of this regard once again is a little contradictory with some saying that there could in fact be no change in the size of the notch uh, there are also rumors of a tri- triple lens 3d rear camera system that uses 
a laser to calculate depth information for objects in the room uh, improving both photography and ar capabilities this is likely to be similar to the lidar scanner in the 2020 ipad pro and it appears to be limited only to the higher end 6.7 inch iphone model uh, more importantly 2020 will be the first year that apple introduces 5g support to its iphones and according to rumors most of the iphones in the iphone 12 lineup will feature 5g connectivity though it's not very clear if all iphone 12 models have the super fast millimeter wave support and there are some reports which suggest that millimeter wave speeds could be limited to the pro models in certain countries just to elaborate on millimeter waves uh, they are broadly two 5g frequency spectrums one at the sub 6 hertz frequency range and the other one beyond the 6 uh, gigahertz range famously known as the millimeter wave in short the millimeter wave spectrum allows for a large bandwidth which allows for potentially faster speeds and the sub 6 gigahertz spectrum meanwhile has limited bandwidth and therefore its speeds could be potentially slower than what the millimeter wave spectrum could offer this is in very layman terms of how this technology actually impacts customer experience but there are there are lots more uh, nitty-gritties involved in it uh, coming back to the iPhones the iPhone 12 uh, series will use uh, apple's designed 5 nanometer a14 uh, chip manufactured by tmsc the a14 chip is expected to bring both speed and efficiency improvements as is the case with every other iterative improvements and of course the battery life is supposed to be a lot better and in some ways it's going to really compensate for the battery drain caused by uh, the usage of 5g but again um, what's really surprising is that the battery size would be slightly smaller than its predecessor so we'll have to see how it affects real life usage and device endurance on a day to day basis now that's broadly all the specifications of the iphone and what really got me excited more than all the internals was the price the iphones are rumored to start at $650 for the 5g model and i hope they completely ditch the 64 gigabyte model and make 128 gb the standard um, there are also rumors that App- apple could be launching 4g versions of the smartphones at as low as $550 uh, and for me the nail in the coffin for a lot of brands out there and uh, would be the pricing in itself and here's why i believe it's it's a major game changer as to what apple is doing there are there are very few flagship smartphones at this price point um, at say at the $550 and considering 5g is at least a couple of years away for most countries it's an absolute steal i mean i can't think of another device at $550 that really would be providing the kind of experience that a flagship device would provide and a device that you could hold on to for 5 years with extensive software support of course there are a lot of other factors um, like the ecosystem uh, that that plays a major part in all of this but with most flagship smartphone manufacturers considering the iphone as their competition it's obvious that they look to come up with something across price points to compete also the other rumor was that the iphones aren't going to ship with chargers in the box which i'm perfectly okay with as long as they bundle the proprietary cable in the box most people will have a charging brick lying around so if that helps cut 20 30 dollars off the price then why not uh, another great move that i believe is for apple to have gone with just oled for their devices translating to uncompromising media experience irrespective of which iphone you end up choosing 
Of course, the higher refresh rate is something that the inexpensive iPhones uh, are going to be missing out on, or maybe the entire line is going to be missing out on. But I really don't think they're losing much in the process if Apple were to completely do away with the high refresh rate displays. I personally have been using 60 hertz and 90 hertz OLED displays, and uh, for a while now, and I believe that high refresh rate displays are a little overrated. Uh, I mean, yes, there's a difference, but it's not night and day like a lot of people say. So I wouldn't be bummed by the fact that higher uh, refresh rate displays are restricted either to the higher end models or Apple completely does away with uh, higher refresh rate displays, especially when uh, it's going to help bring down the price of the iPhones, then most certainly. I'm also happy that the size of the notch is rumored to be reduced while I would love to see an all-screen iPhone. I think we have to live with the forehead notch for a couple more years. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's not a deal breaker considering most of the users are used to that form factor and, and the look and feel of the iPhone. So that's, that's all about the iPhone uh, that, that we've seen as far as the rumors are concerned. Uh, as I see it, there's a great feature set, there's excellent pricing, and I'm really happy to see what Google is going to bring with the uh, Pixel line of devices and um, Apple with the SE and the 12 series. I mean, smartphones don't need to cost an arm and limb to be really good. So it's really great to see the likes of Google and Apple driving the change on this front. So the second news is about Google launching the Pixel 5 and the Pixel 4a 5G and what is surprising about these devices themselves is its rumored specifications. So Google launched the 4G version of the Pixel 4a which I'm a huge fan of. The device ticked all the checkboxes you would consider imperative for an uncompromising experience for an average consumer. Uh, things like an OLED display, stereo speakers, headphone jack, arguably the best camera that you can find in a $400 smartphone, and most importantly, Google's credible software support. Also, what I really liked about the Pixel 4a, uh, something that was confirmed by a lot of reviewers, is the user experience. The device doesn't stutter or slow down. Despite having a mid-range processor, it has excellent battery endurance, both of which are vital for any device to be considered good in 2020. Now, coming to the Pixel 5, which is Google's flagship device, tip to be launched later this month, it's going to be powered by a Snapdragon 765G chipset, which is considered a mid-range 5G processor. And for context, every flagship Pixel device was powered by a top-tier 8-series chipset from Snapdragon or Qualcomm. While I've always believed that there are very few cases that warranted such computing power on a mobile device, Google's move in some ways adds a lot of weightage to that belief that I had. Typically, any smartphone manufacturer would cramp all the best internals and top-tier SOCs and use them in their promotional message to talk about performance and experience. But today's mobile SOCs have gotten so powerful that you cannot differentiate between a flagship processor and a mid-tier processor unless you use absolutely niche use cases to call out the differences. In day-to-day -day use, you just don't need as much computing power as you're going to be paying for with the 8 series uh, chipsets. And it's only companies like Google and, uh, and, and Apple in some ways and the likes of OnePlus who could really challenge this conventional belief. 
back in the day when manufacturers made us believe that you needed a dedicated telephoto lens to shoot photos with background bokeh google achieved it with a single camera and software in fact google software was so good that other manufacturers had to quickly transition to computational photography which provided far superior results compared to having say dedicated lenses to do the same now if that trend is anything to go by i'm i'm hoping that a lot more smartphone manufacturers turn their attention towards value flagships i'd say at around 300 and 400 dollar mark uh, and, and google if has made a case for having such flagships and you really don't need to end up spending a lot of money in getting top tier 800 series chipsets but coming back to google and its pixel it's a very very wise move the pixels were never known to have the latest and the greatest hardware but they were renowned for their uncompromising software experience and best in class cameras but their flagships never justified the $1000 asking price so with this move i'm hoping that the pixel 5 will be priced at about $600 and it tops off but let's say about $800 for the 512 gb storage and 8 gigabyte of ram version i think this will make Pixel a very compelling proposition, especially at a time when Android flagships are priced at over thousand dollars and close to about thousand four hundred dollars today. Also, I'm I'm sure that the technology community will give Google a thumbs up. Um, the Pixel devices had everything right, but for the pricing and availability. And I'm also hoping that they are able to iron out their supply chain woes and make the devices available for purchase within weeks of its launch. Again Google's priority has never been to make money with the pixels it's been more about Google showcasing its vision of a clean android powered smartphone and with the Snapdragon 765G which is no slouch going by how fast the OnePlus Nord is and add to that Google's class leading software optimization the Pixel 5 is all set to being one of the best selling pixels ever Uh, I'm really interested to see how Google's strategy with its distribution and availability post-launch pans out because, as far as I can see it, they are insanely well placed to take over the smartphone market amongst the enthusiast community as well as the mainstream consumer community alike. So, really, really interested to see how Google goes about this because this is a time when affordable fact flagships are really uh, making the right kind of impact in the in the, in the minds of people. and i'm assuming that this would be a great start for bigger brands to really find the right combination to launch devices in the 400 dollar price point the next piece of news is about samsung looking to launch a light version of its foldable devices And for context Samsung recently launched the second edition of its foldable device the Galaxy Z Fold 2. Uh it's a true foldable device with flexible OLED display and it's priced at about $2000 in the US and an even more exorbitant 165000 rupees in India. It's a novelty device no doubt. Uh it also packs a punch. But the pricing makes it an ultra premium device with few takers than their recent flagships uh like say the Note 20 Ultra and the S20 Ultra and a lot of other brands too have tried introducing devices with the foldable form factor uh the ones that i can remember are Motorola with the new Razer LG with the Velvet and of course the recently launched Microsoft Surface Duo 
Uh, we've also had foldables on the likes of Huawei and considering we are in the second iteration of the product category, it'll just be a matter of time be before we have several Chinese OEMs coming uh, with a lot more affordable alternatives. So it's nice to see Samsung looking to take a head start and planning to offer a more reasonably priced foldable device. Again, not that this light device is going to be priced at $300 or $400, but potentially at about 60% of the price of the Z Fold 2, uh, somewhere around the $1,000 to $1,200 mark. And today, if you look at the market, there's absolutely no brand that has a commercial foldable product made available globally. And I'm talking about a true foldable product without the hinge and actually have using foldable OLED displays. So... Considering the rumors that Samsung is going to sunset the Note line, they would definitely have to fill the gap in their product line at a price point with a compelling device that is making a case for itself, uh, especially in the midst of similar looking and specced rectangular slabs. So it's a great move by Samsung, uh, both from a business standpoint as well as pushing the limits of smartphone innovation. I think the foldables make a lot of sense in, in the Android world because the definition of an Android tablet today is a smartphone with a larger form factor and, and that's about it. There's no unique OS that's available. Google has shelved its plan to have a tablet OS indicating their lack of intent in this space and it's got a lot to do with large screen smartphones having invaded the market. And so it makes absolute sense to wrap both these devices into one and we don't always need a tablet form factor and when we do we have it as a part of the same device so it makes a lot of sense to have these foldables while the time for the foldables to take over the market are potentially a couple of years away i am pretty happy to see samsung working on an affordable version of the smartphone considering it's it's their key competitive advantage and sometimes they can get away with the $2,000 pricing by just offering the kind of novelty that nobody else in the market can offer at this point in time. The next news is about Realme, the smartphone subsidiary of BBK Electronics, lifting the review embargo of its recently launched mid-tier smartphone series, the Realme 7 and the Realme 7 Pro. And these are a follow-up to the Realme 6 series, which were launched late last year. And both the 7 series phones run Android 10 with Realme UI on top of it. As far as the specs are concerned, the Pro version features a 6.4-inch Full HD Super AMOLED display with about 91% screen-to-body ratio uh, and the display resolution is Full HD with an aspect ratio of 20 to 9 and it's a standard 60Hz refresh rate display. In comparison, the non-Pro version of the Realme 7 comes with a slightly larger 6.5-inch Full HD uh, display. It's an LCD display. It comes at a higher refresh rate of 120Hz with a 20 to 9 aspect ratio and a similar 91% screen-to-body ratio. The Pro version is powered by the Snapdragon 720G SoC with 8GB of LPDDR4 RAM and the 7 non-Pro version has the Octa-Core MediaTek Helio G95 SoC and the same amount of RAM which is 8GB. As far as the Pro version is concerned, it comes with a set of stereo speakers with the earpiece doubling up as a speaker to provide an immersive experience. It also comes with a whopping 65 watt charger in the box that promises to charge the device in under 30 minutes 
which is indeed impressive for the price segment that it is really catering to while the realme 7 series are in some ways an evolution but again they are a downgrade in a lot of other ways again i would be delving into the reasons in this video probably in the next podcast maybe we could take a look at all of the phones which have been coming into the market which are more of downgrades than upgrades when compared to their predecessor coming back uh, to the specifications of the device the cameras are pretty good too the pro version houses a 64 megapixel imx682 primary sensor with an f by 1.8 lens an 8 megapixel secondary sensor with an f by 1 2.3 ultra wide lens a 2 megapixel monochrome and a 2 megapixel macro lens so that makes it a quad cam rear setup as far as the selfies are concerned it's got a 32 megapixel selfie camera with an f by 2.5 aperture the 7 the non pro version carries the exact same rear camera setup as a pro version however the selfie shooter is a 16 megapixel sensor with a f by 2.1 lens Again while the specifications look pretty decent on paper I I really don't think that this device in any way will disrupt the segment it is catering to the sub $250 segment is really packed with such amazing devices from the likes of Xiaomi Oppo Realme and even Samsung has quite a few devices in this segment uh one peculiar trend that i see in all the devices that you would see in the sub $250 segment is that they all have certain great features and they do come up with certain compromises which means you can't have it all but you can still pick the device based on the use cases that matter the most to you if you ask me uh my ideal $250 smartphone needs to have a set of features which i believe are absolutely necessary for it to really make a mark in the segment uh i would start with say a full hd amoled display with potentially 90 hertz refresh rate a 60 hertz one would also be fine but 90 hertz would really really make a lot of sense of course stereo speakers are mandatory something that the realme 7 pro brings with it which i believe is very very critical to really differentiate in the segment because that's something that has never penetrated to the sub 250 dollar segment as far as storage is concerned UFS 3.0 is something that we haven't seen in the space we've only seen 2.1 3.0 makes the experience a little bit more fluid so that's something that's that would be great to have in the segment a Snapdragon 7 series also makes a lot of sense so we've seen a lot of phones coming up with uh, MediaTek processors and potentially 6 series or even 4 series Snapdragon processors in the segment but 7 series need to be the bare minimum The next one is of course a good camera setup. Uh, I wouldn't want a 4K setup wherein two of them really work more towards a marketing department than uh, on the image quality. So a 2K setup would be absolutely ideal. Of course a 3.5 mm headphone jack because if I'm going to be looking at a phone in this segment I really don't want to spend anything extra on the lines of say bluetooth headphones or what not. I would like to use my existing 3.5 mm uh headphones or earphones and I wouldn't really want to invest more than what I'm investing for the device. As far as the front facing camera is concerned from a design standpoint I believe a punch hole would be much better. If at all we're going to be able to bring in a motorized camera to provide that full screen experience then nothing like it. Base storage again 128 gigs per minimum 4 to 6 gigabytes of expandable uh, I mean 4 to 4 uh, to 6 gigabytes of RAM with some amount of expandable storage would make absolute sense. As far as build quality is concerned I'm absolutely okay with matte plastic I really don't want glass bla- uh, glass sandwiches where in the back unnecessarily houses uh, 
a glass uh, slab because it really doesn't make sense in say a mid-tier smartphone um, until these specs are included in a sub $250 device I really don't think that the segment can be disrupted and also there are a few features which really don't mean much to the device and they just add to the bill of materials and of course they add to the marketing collaterals of the brand but really don't add much to the uh, to the customer experience so I can actually give you a couple of examples of such features one of it of course I just spoke about is having glass on the back I really don't see a reason for a mid-tier device to have a glass back because the primary reason why flagships have a glass back is to support wireless charging and that's potentially the only reason why there could be other ways of marketing it saying it looks a lot more premium but how many customers using flagship devices do we see use, uh, using their device without a case everybody uses a case because the glass back makes it a lot more fragile so it really makes no sense to house a mid-tier device with a glass uh, back so for me personally matte plastic makes for the most ideal material which is both cost effective and if it done if it's done properly can make a device look reasonably good while also not being fragile and add to that the device will also be a few grams lighter so that is something that manufacturers can use maybe by improving the capacity of battery by few milliampere hours which improves the endurance of the device so it could be a better usage of weight when somebody is really measuring how heavy a device could potentially be for it to not be cumbersome to be used over long durations. The other useless feature that inflates the bill of material is the unnecessary set of cameras that a lot of devices today are coming with. I personally believe that every device at best needs two cameras. One as the main sensor and of course the other one being the ultra wide uh, lens. The macro and the depth sensors are totally unnecessary but in the race to showcase more cameras brands are really stuffing four or even five cameras on their devices which really inflates the prices and really doesn't add much to the experience. It seems to be working for now but I really believe that it will start to hit saturation where customers will start to look for other differentiators while really shortlisting the device that they would be investing in. And when we do actually see a manufacturer muster the courage to offer features that are meant to improve customer experience rather than just their marketing collaterals is when I believe this segment will start to see some progress in the right direction. Until then, we're going to be seeing a lot of identical devices coming out with amazing marketing but really not pushing the ante as far as this segment is concerned. So this next news is about OnePlus's foray into the entry-level smartphone segment and this is a product that they have codenamed as the OnePlus Clover and has been rumored for quite some time now and this recent leak really raises a lot of questions about OnePlus's strategy to win the entry-level smartphone segment and as far as this leak is concerned the phone is tipped to be powered by the Snapdragon 460 SoC and this has been spotted on Geekbench which is a popular benchmarking platform and typically when phones are spotted on Geekbench it's an indication that the phone is reasonably close to launch. This new handset is carrying a model number it says BE2012 and it's listed to pack 4GB of RAM and if a recent report uh, is to be believed 
OnePlus Clover will go on sale in the US with a price tag of about $200 which roughly translates to 14,500 Indian rupees. The phone is listed to be running Android 10 as well. And this Geekbench listing though hints that the processor would be clocked at 1.8 GHz of base frequency and have 8 CPU cores. And the phone managed to score 254 points in a single core test and 1174 points in a multi-core test making it outrightly evident that it's, it's an absolute entry-level handset. What's important to note here is that this could completely be a different OnePlus handset in the works and not the OnePlus Clover because last month the OnePlus Clover was spotted on Geekbench with the Snapdragon 660 SoC 4GB of RAM running Android 10. It looks like OnePlus has a slew of budget smartphone it plans to launch under the Nord brand name and as you may recall the OnePlus management had said that the OnePlus Nord was the beginning and they would have many other devices uh, that they're looking to launch in the near future while this is great news that oneplus is entering the segment uh, that has long been marred by subpar software experience and knowing oneplus's desire to offer the best customer experience irrespective of price point it is catering to this could really disrupt the entry-level smartphone segment while on one side it's nice to see that oneplus is catering to customers across price points I'm a little concerned about how they'll go about streamlining their product software releases and OnePlus has been known to prioritize software updates for its devices and has been one of the fastest to provide major software updates to flagships up to three years uh, knowing that the convention is to provide updates for just about two years and most companies are usually pretty lethargic in rolling out updates on time and knowing how hard it is to manage software updates for several devices it'll indeed be a challenge uh, a new challenge for oneplus uh, and they haven't really experienced something in the past because they had a very lean product line and again the challenge is not just to roll out new software i mean considering these phones are running different internals and are catering to varying price points oneplus's software division will be under extra pressure to optimize the software for a lot more devices than they did in the past so it'll be interesting to see how quick uh, oneplus is able to roll out optimized softwares for maybe say eight to ten devices that it may have to support considering its three-year update strategy so the last news is about huawei announcing the upgrade to its harmony os uh, which is the harmony os 2.0 and the company says it's been spending over a year in exploring how they could build an OS that drives seamless conversations between multiple devices. So Huawei says that in comparison to Harmony OS 1.0, 2.0 comes with a lot of improvements and Huawei says that this version is fundamentally better. Moreover, the new OS will be coming to smartphones next year with the SDK being made available in late 2020. Uh, it'll bring distributed capabilities and will be will also be available for tablets and wearables in the future. So, so what's different uh, from Harmony OS 1.0 that 2.0 brings to the table? Harmony, uh, Huawei says that Harmony OS 2.0 is fundamentally better. That can be attributed to its distributed capabilities, uh, by which it means that 
The core is to develop apps for one platform and it can be deployed across all supported platforms irrespective of the device form factor. Uh, Huawei says that HarmonyOS is not a replacement of its current OS and it will be made available to other vendors and hardware manufacturers worldwide. Huawei also admits that uh, developing a good ecosystem is far harder than developing new technology whereby it's urging developers to help realize the vision of an open cross-platform OS that doesn't compromise on security and also offers an easier and more versatile development opportunity. Harmony OS 2.0 is enabling ecosystem partners and in order to offer more choices to vendors and partners, they are choosing to integrate Harmony OS 2.0 uh, or use the source code to compile, compile and run it in the system. So this is indeed a great attempt by Huawei uh, rather than uh, rather they were forced to adopt this considering the restrictions in dealing with a lot of its partners such as Android and Google being one of them and of course Samsung and Qualcomm and uh, manufacturing their processors. So there have been a lot of restrictions which has forced Huawei to really branch out and do something independently. The close parallel that I can draw to this is that of Samsung with Tizen while again Samsung wasn't forced into doing anything like this. Samsung always wanted to have its own connected ecosystem by virtue of what it sells. It sells consumer durables and a whole lot of things and it wanted to create Tizen as its unifying operating system across all connected devices. So uh, while Samsung is again fighting a long and hard battle in creating its ecosystem of connected devices, things haven't been smooth sailing for Samsung for quite some time now. But for Huawei, uh, I think the situation is entirely different. Uh, Huawei has something that Samsung doesn't have, which is market leadership in China, the largest telecommunication user base in the world. Uh, besides, there are also certain other advantages in the way the smartphone ecosystem has been developed in China for record there is no Google Play services even if you your uh, smartphone was resting on the foundation built by Android. So most manufacturers have software overlays and their own range of services are offered through dedicated app stores. So for any Chinese smartphone user, Android typically doesn't matter. Uh, for Huawei, most importantly, one of the main reasons they sold uh, the most number of devices last quarter was because of their sheer dominance in the Chinese market. Uh, and add to that the possibility of Apple uh, being banned from listing marquee Chinese apps like say WeChat, the opportunity for Huawei is indeed endless. So I believe this is a great move by Huawei. Uh, they make the best of consumer electronic devices. They by, by far make the best camera smartphones and add to that they have a very strong R&D uh, and market presence in China already. So this move while it's important in the context of what's happening. I believe it could turn out to be a masterstroke for Huawei uh, for thriving in its home country. Here on. So that's all the news we had planned for this episode of Tech Talk Weekly. Please do share your thoughts on the podcast. Your feedback definitely helps refine our content. We'll continue to work towards bringing all the exciting technology news and our views in a concise 40-minute format. Thanks for taking the time and listening to the Tech Talk Weekly. Until the next one, stay tech-sighted.